Welcome to the Secure Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Matranga. We're in the ASAP Security Studios with owner of ASAP Security, Mike Monsiv. Today, we want to talk about a couple different topics uh, of discussion that has been recently on the minds of a lot of people in the United States, uh, specifically those within the law enforcement uh, fields and those within the law enforcement fields within our schools. Um, we want to talk about HB 13 here in the state of Texas that is being pushed through our legislation, which would uh, essentially give um, teachers and educators uh, a $25,000 stipend to become what is now going to be called a sentinel in uh, the K-12 security space. And so I'll turn it over to Mike with a simple question of, um, or just a uh, reflection of over some events that have happened over the last couple of years uh, since COVID and during COVID, um, and prior to COVID, we had an uprising of um, protests and demonstrations throughout the United States uh, shortly after the George Floyd uh, murder uh, by some Min Minneapolis, Minnesota uh, police officers. Um, rightfully so, um, uh, not encouraging any type of violence or the behaviors that followed, but uh, definitely the prosecution of bad actors in law enforcement. And so, um, you know, understanding the use of force continuum, being invo involved and in being uh, uh, in the law enforcement field for such a long time, I definitely think that the outcome of that trial was uh, was warranted. I definitely think that it was uh, just. Uh, and, you know, we can have our political differences and political opinions or differences of opinion, but at the end of the day, what I think that those officers lost was a sense of compassion uh, for that individual, regardless of what he had done at that point, he was in a position of a disadvantage and therefore should have been treated uh, differently. And so uh, with that said, uh, we want to talk about today HB 13 of arming teachers. Uh, we want to talk about responsible gun ownership and we want to talk about um, this narrative that uh, some within the political space uh, has pushed to defund law enforcement throughout the United States. And uh, now we're starting to see this backtrack of some of the policies and some of the procedures that they pushed out shortly after uh, some of these demonstrations throughout the United States of disarming, dis, uh, uh, or defunding, and uh, removing law enforcement from schools, right? Because we're you know, mostly focused on the school security space. So what are your thoughts on that? I've got a lot of thoughts. That was a really okay. long, loaded question there. That so. was very long. It, it was a very loaded question. I so, wanted to make sure that you got all of it. All right. So uh, I think it's important to start with uh, law enforcement in general. So our company does uh, a lot of work for law enforcement agencies, uh, city governments, in looking at uh, how to help secure, how to leverage technology uh, to, to help bridge the gap between the shortage of officers that they have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I first started working with law enforcement, you know, I thought that they had the financial resources or, you know, they could go and get the money that they needed. And now, you know, being intimately involved in that purchasing process and, and getting into the financials and looking at, you know, city's budgets and things like that. Um, you know, we're, we're based in Houston. It's been national news uh, for a number of years going back and forth on negotiations with police and fire and uh, pay and, you know, uh, different types of uh, negotiations between the unions and things like that. Um, what 
we look at or what you miss, if you look at the city's budget, these numbers for police and fire are huge numbers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and sometimes people just focus on the number and not what makes that number up. Um, when you get into uh, some of these law enforcement agencies across the country that we've dealt with, right? Uh, where does that money go? A lot of these departments are running their entire operation on single digit percentages uh-huh. for the entire organization. And that includes technology, buildings, vehicles, training, weapons, everything is in those single digit numbers. And the remaining 90 plus percent of that budget goes to payroll, yeah. right? And so we have less officers today on the street than we used to have. And the, the funding just set back the entire law mm-hmm. enforcement world uh, across the country, right? Because as the states and cities went to go defund, some of the funding from the, the federal level also s- slowed down some of those grants. And so where we already had constrained law enforcement budgets and resources, they were constrained even more. And so then you add in things like civil unrest, oh. protest, COVID, all of these things where now we need more officers and they have less and they don't have the budget to go in there. Even if they were able to go through and train and find candidates and get them ready to put them out on the street, they don't have the money to pay the officers. Well, and the rate of retention, they can't keep up, right? They're constantly trying to backfill. Well, and that narrative's got to change. So, you know, we started, you talked a little bit about the George Floyd officers, right? Um, it, it, and that was a situation where absolutely those officers overstepped the lines, right? But there's so many other times where an incident happens and immediately the media runs with it and they're yeah. found guilty in the media before the facts are even out, before anybody's even seen well, a video, seen any of the body cam footage, knows the situation, all of the things that happen that goes over it instantly, you know, oh, this is police brutality. Right. And it's, it's, it's no longer innocent and proven guilty for police officers for police officers right right so why would you want to be a police officer it's directly impacting that right and some of these people even when they were found innocent had to move Mm -hmm. over death threats and their family you know being threatened by physical violence um they've had to change their names they've had to move Mm -hmm. and they were found innocent and there there is no support for them and and there is no at least more and more people have uh, less uh, respect for them than ever before. And so as we, you know, you look at that, these impact those recruiting numbers, right? Like how how they come back and do that. And and the defunding just amplified all of these already issues. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, speaking from the perspective of a school resource officer or someone who managed 19, um, you know, when, and then being a former uh, school board member, you know, and being on the finance committee, I knew how much money was allocated to, you know, whatever we had, right? And so, um, you know, I understand that the goal of, a, of an educational institution is to educate children. I certainly understand that. But if we can't provide a safe learning environment for them, then what is going to be our outcome? How, you know, how do we measure success if they can't go to school and feel safe there? And well, so, and a lot of times those SROs are actual law enforcement officers. A lot of them are, yeah. yes. So if they already are short-staffed at the police department and right. we don't have the people and we have less officers than ever, 
how do we now try to go and tap that same limited resource mm-hmm. and say, oh yeah, I need you to go work, uh, you know, eight to five or seven right. to four at, at school. the school. Uh, right. at, the, at the same time, we don't have the resources to actually protect the city. Yeah. Well, my budget, you know, total budget, this was, uh, um, you know, total budget for SROs, all of our technology, software, our uh, paraprofessional staff that were security officers or security monitors at the time was about two to three percent of total budget, right? So, you know, we know and experts will tell you in the education space that the kids have to be in a safe and secure uh, learning environment. Well, if that's such an important component, and we were one of the better districts, our, ours was only two to three percent. I can only imagine when you go to some of these districts, it's probably well below 1% total budget that goes towards keeping your kids or America's kids safe in schools. And so, you know, we have to, I think, start looking at, um, you know, we look at everything from, you know, architecture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in architecture, we're starting to see these beautiful buildings being uh, designed, but they're not, uh, you know, taking into consideration any type of security features. Uh, we've been in one of the most beautiful high schools I've ever seen in my life. Um, well over $100 million. All of the classrooms are glass. Great for the learning environment, but not taking it into consideration. They can't learn if they don't feel safe. You know, if you look at the standard response protocol of, you know, lock, uh, lock down, secure, hold, evacuate, and shelter in place. Let's just take, for example, a lockdown. Locks, lights, out of sight. Where it's do impossible. you get out of sight? So what I'll tell you is if you're an educator and you've passed a bond and you're building these schools, don't be um, convinced by these architects that you need to install all of this glass uh, in your classrooms uh, because it's, you know, Let's think about also. It has to be a healthy balance, right? Not only is it, it, it not safe, it's also a distraction, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's not, maybe, maybe not so much at the high school level. I'm sure it's still a distraction there, but elementary. you start getting into elementary yeah. and you have a wall of glass. Every kid that goes across there, walks in front of there, whole class is going to look at it. Yeah. And then you take the class clown, he's going to the bathroom, he can put on a show all the way around and completely yeah. train wreck the, the learning process well, of all those My schools. wife's school, she's at, a, she's at a joint campus, elementary and middle school. Brand new school, probably, I don't know, three years old. Um, same thing, architect firm comes in, they, they uh, build out this beautiful campus and it is beautiful. Uh, classrooms are all windows. You know, so what did they do? What did the district do last week or our last year? Oh, I think we might have made a mistake by going with this design of having classroom walls made out of windows and they put up mini blinds, right? So then now they're putting up mini blinds, which is an additional cost that they weren't factoring in. Well, uh, and mini blinds, you know, take damage, right? You got kids. Well, what are they going to do is like hold on them. They bend them. They yeah. break them. They Then you have them where they don't close right. And then some are open and some aren't. And, you know, years ago, the the, the school was always built to a different standard, right? right? So if you think about um, even, you know, and we, we heard some of this from uh, Brent Cooley the other day, right? Yep. And he, he was talking about um, uh, Hurricane Ike or, you know, one of, one of the hurricanes mm-hmm. and how they had all of the city, emergency service, fire, police, everything else had taken refuge. In a school. In a school mm-hmm. to ride the storm out for several reasons. A, how it was built. And B, it was the highest point in the county, mm-hmm. right? 
And so when you, when you think about that, those things used to be taken into consideration. Elevation, the materials that they were built at, you used to be able to see a, uh, a, 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 a tornado like absolutely rip through a town. Mm-hmm. And there was typically one building that was still standing. Usually a school. It was usually a school, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's because the hallways, all the classrooms were made out of cinder, cinder block, block. Yeah. a concrete-filled yeah. cinder block. They had steel frame doors, solid wood doors. <clears throat> How many schools have we been in recently oh that had, you know, hollow core, like residential Tons. type doors Tons. that you could just put a fist right through? Well, no the, more solid doors, yeah, right? I, I mean... mean some of the uh, some of the some of the best campuses that I, that we walk into are old, old schools. Yeah. I love them. I yep. walk in there and I look, and it's got cinder block walls. It's like great. They had lockers yeah. on the outside lockers. of it. You had a whole other barrier there. You know, whole uh, ballistic properties there um, that, that people don't think about. So if you've got an old school, think twice about tearing it down. You got <laughs> cinder block walls. Don't listen to that nonsense <laughs> about um, you don't need cinder block walls anymore. Um, and I'm not, you know, listen, I'm advocating for a healthy, um, healthy you know, educational environment. But sure. like you said, it's, it's got to be a healthy balance. Yeah. Right? And I so, mean, it, we should be improving security and building materials, not coming back. Yeah. When you're when you're uh, a guiding principle is letting in natural light yeah. and you're building something out of that. Um, then, then maybe there's there's a yeah. challenge there. Right? Man, we, like we kind of got really right off on it. We, we started out on defunding police, and now we're talking about building architecture we, and building we structures and you know how we factor in that. I can get way into the deep woods about how we did that at my previous district, um, which I think is still pretty smart how we did yeah, let's it. Let's save that for another but day. We'll, we'll save that for another day, but let's get back to talking about defunding of the police. And I think you know one of the... The things well, that we're starting to see—it's it, really like a pendulum swing, right? We talk about this, right, absolutely. like it, it, over and over again. Where, um, okay, hey, this event happened, and uh, somebody with a gun was able to neutralize the threat and saved all these lives. Okay, guns are good, right? And responsible gun ownership is is great, and everybody should have a gun. And then there's a mass shooting somewhere, and then it goes back over here. And yeah. then it's the same thing that you see on the other side. Okay, guns are bad. We need to get rid of them. Uh, AR-style rifles are, need to go away. Then the pendulum swings back over. Hey, this incident happened with police. Police are bad. Um, we're going to defund them. And then mm-hmm. crime goes up through the roof. People are being robbed. Stores are being taken advantage of. You know, extremely liberal DAs that don't prosecute well, anybody. The and same, then it swings back. People the are in there ones, like, oh, we need more police. The same ones who are calling to defund the police and to remove SROs from school are the same ones that when something happens to their child or to them and they've been victimized, they're the ones that are calling for the police. Right. The same people that are talking about defunding. Right. And so, you know, what we're seeing in the United States, not only with, with law enforcement, is a lot of people don't want to be law enforcement officers anymore. We're seeing record rates of retirement. We're seeing, uh, you know, low retention numbers. I mean, I'm sorry, high retention numbers. We're not able to retain people. Um, we're starting to see uh, people not wanting to go into the education space. Uh, my wife, 24 years, uh, she's got five and a half years left to retire. The day that she hits her retirement age and date, she's out. You know, well, I've um, uh, heard of a, something new now where they the schools are actually it, it's, it was new to me. Let me just say that uh, hire former administrators mm-hmm. um, to help with retention. 
And so they're now independent contractors that then go out and work with new teachers yeah. and try to explain that all of the trials and tribulations that they're going to is, is normal. <laughs> it's like a it's motivational part of the job speaker and for try them. to keep them engaged. Because what they're finding is, is that even though they're struggling to get teachers, when they do get new teachers and they get into a situation that maybe the administration's not supporting them or there's that first major conflict with parents and teachers, well, that those new teachers are like, I'm out. Well, right? I think what people are not understanding, and I had this conversation last night with a um, really close friend of mine uh, at Texas City ISD. He's our um, you know, uh, head football coach and a man that I tremendously admire for his work and mentoring kids and trying to make men, men, you know, the old school tactics of holding kids accountable, you know, honoring your word, your handshake is as good as a contract, uh, presenting yourself to people in a, in a very approachable manner, uh, speaking with respect. And that's Sean Evans over at Texas City ISD. And uh, we were talking about this last night. And one of the things that we were discussing was that people are tired. Teachers are tired. Staff is tired. SROs, they are tired because it's, it's so easy for people that are disconnected from the education space to include some of our elected officials. Um, and, and one of the common things I hear them say is, well, it starts at home. People always say it starts at home, but like what Sean and I were talking about last night is that these people that say that haven't been in a school in a very long time. Right. They haven't seen the amount of abuse verbally and physically that our staff takes on. Um, they don't see the pain in some of these kids' eyes because they don't have uh, food in their stomach. Uh, they don't have a roof over their head or a consistent roof over their head. Their mother, their father is not there. Yeah, um, the breakdown of or... American society and the, the traditional family unit has completely all but been destroyed from you know the mid-1980s until current day. And so it's easy to say it starts at home, but people think, oh, well, you know, educators educate kids. No, they're doing way more than that. They're educating your kid. They're teaching him and her about respect and honor and dignity and compassion and all of the things that a parent should be teaching them because they're not getting it at home. They're not. And so teachers of today are not just educating your kids. They, I mean, listen, if I had it my way, I would propose that each, you know, teachers make $100,000 a year mm. because that's the amount of work they're putting in. They deserve it. And I don't even know if that's enough. Um, no. You know, they're, they're being called to be way more than they ever have been. Correct. Um, and so, you know, when I sit before Senate panels and, you know, I, I had a, a senator here, I don't know, a couple of years ago, we were talking about the behaviors in schools uh, that are being so out of control. And they're, you know, some of these kids are being diagnosed at record rates into the 504 special education programs. Um which is causing havoc upon the general population of the school um, because some of these kids, uh, you know, and some of them rightfully so need additional care um, from an intellectual standpoint. Some of these kids are being diagnosed into behavioral uh, or being diagnosed with behavioral disabilities that are causing havoc on the staff and on the students. 
And that is not creating a safe and secure environment that these people who make these laws for us like to preach, right? And so then you have a shortage of staff. You have a defunded police department, which gives us less officers to use for SROs. Uh It also increases the level of violence at the school, right? Because as they have these limited resources, they're dealing with Uh all these struggles, they're not getting what they need as far as honor and discipline and even a meal or a roof over their head, basic necessities. Uh They become more aggressive in many cases. They become a disruption to the class. And then that ultimately spills over to now an SRO or an administrator having to deal with that as well as the teacher. And there's frustrations all the way along along the way. Yeah. And so, um, yes, you know, some of this does start at home as far as providing the respect, the honor, the you know, the basic care. Uh, and and the other part of it is just in in general respect for yeah. people. And and I remember vividly when my kids were young and they would just uh, talk to. Um, uh, adults and look them in the eye and that it started um, with public speaking right mm-hmm. they they got involved with public speaking and had to had to go out and present um, at a very very early age and talk in front of a group of people and um, they learned how to look at people in the eyes when they talked and how even today that doesn't happen right like it's just not a lot of times you talk to a kid and they're they're over here looking wherever they're never looking at the person individually right. in the eyes and and it has a it has so much to do with respect and and so as we continue to to have less resources and we pull funding from these things it just further and further uh, sends us into a decline. Well, I mean, you know, even even in my personal experiences, we had nineteen officers at, at the former district that I was at great group of men and women. They really were uh, really good guys and gals there. I, I, I really respect them. They, uh, they did everything that I ever asked them to do and, and then some. Um, but I will tell you, it's not always the same um, everywhere else. Uh, we had a little bit different approach uh, to school security uh, than most. Um, you know, admittedly, when I first got there, we came in kind of hard with an ask, tell, make policy, ask them to stop, tell them to stop, then make them stop. And then once we established that, you know, hey, listen, we had to gain some type of control and understanding of what the what the boundaries were, then things became a lot easier by us establishing these more, uh, this more therapeutic uh, mentoring type approach. Um, so what we do know is through the National Threat Assessment Center, what they've stated is if a child that's on a pathway to violence uh, whether it be uh, uh, you know self harm or harm to others, has at least one to two trusted individual grown ups in their life, uh, they are more than ninety percent likely to become off or to get off that pathway to violence. And so, you know, we always talk about you know in society. When I was growing up, I mean, I'm a I'm a kid of the '70s, so are you. Um, you know, it was kind of, well, you're 80, right? You're 80, right? <laughs> yeah. Dang. Okay. Well, I was 77, but, um, you know, when we were growing up, it was kind of a, you know, your parents were your parents. Um, but if an adult saw you doing something that you shouldn't have been doing, then they, they corrected that. Right? It, it goes back to the saying of it takes a village, right? Yeah. To a certain standpoint, when everybody had that same right. same ideology, right, that you were messing up in public or something like that, there would yeah. be an adult there. 
And I think we started seeing some of that decline when uh, you started hearing about people publicly shaming a parent mm-hmm. for disciplining their kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they may not believe in some type of punishment and that somebody else did. And when we started getting into individuals' business yeah. and then criticizing the parent instead of the kid's behavior, uh, and, and I, listen, I'm not advocating for yeah. for any type of abuse or anything like that. But there there are definitely situations in your life where there was some type of consequence for your action that got you to change your behavior oh, yeah. and outlook. And that may have been <clears throat> with your own friends yeah. running around. You said something. You got instant feedback. You're like, okay, hey, there's a consequence for what I right. say, right? Um, so those types of things we see less and less. And we've seen this this decline just increase more and more. Well, I don't know about you, but I mean, for me, I never experienced that because I was an angel. Right. Uh, my right. parents will tell you that. Sure. Um, I, I, I know better than that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I was uh, I was pretty uh, pretty rowdy. Um, I caught some whoopings occasionally, yeah. and that's all right. Yeah. You know, but I really didn't have to catch many whoopings from my dad because I always knew that, you know, everything that he taught us was about honor and respect and. You know our family name and representing the family representing yeah, the family say, yeah. you know we're old school italian sicilian family you you do something to degrade the name yeah it's gonna be a problem you know mm-hmm. and so but but you know what i'm getting at is that a lot of these kids don't have that at home and so right. it's responsible it's the responsibility of all of us uh to provide some guidance if you see a kid falling off um you know, you can tell when a kid's having issues. Sure. It is our responsibility to at least, you know, assist, have compassion for that kid. But well, and I you know, know your house is uh, oftentimes similar to mine. That there's always people around. Oh my that God, they, yeah. That the kids are coming over, and you get to visibly see the oh, kids yeah. that are that are interacting with your kids, and and you can witness change and even engage, or you know, just just engage them in general, right? And and whatever the 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 thought process may be or in conversation and challenge sure. them, right? Uh, and, and while they're there, you know, they're in your house, there's going to be manners and they're going to mm-hmm. say that. And if they're out of line, you're going to call them out on it, right? And right. Uh, it's no different at our house that, you yeah. know, there's going to be in there. And well, you know, I think uh, each, you know, everybody does things different and everybody's sure. situations are different, um, you know, but we've got to get back to that. We've got to get back to having these open and honest conversations about, you know, helping each other because, um, you know, in, in reference to teachers, I mean, they're more than just educating your kids nowadays. It's it's a completely different, uh, uh, I mean, it, teachers have always been an integral part of American society in the development of our children. Um, but I think that the, the pressure is even on them harder now uh, or more to to be more than just an educator, sure. to be that, that ear that they need to bend to, uh, you know, heck, I can remember when my wife and I were 22 years old, brand new, she just started working at, it was then Lamarck ISD. I don't know how many kids that we bought track shoes for. I mean, we were, we were kind of broke college, you know, recently married ourselves. We didn't have a whole lot of money. I mean, we, uh, we mowed grass uh, on Friday evening and Saturday just to make our bills and we were helping out kids that we knew needed it and a lot of times they never knew where the money came from or where the shoes came from because it's not about you it's not about me about getting the kid taken care of you know getting back to like sros you know sros i think there's this misunderstanding uh with me 
in particular, I've said on multiple occasions that SROs are not the, the sole solution right. to uh, resolving violence. You've taken heat for that. I've taken a lot of heat yeah. for that. I, I've said that multiple times is that SROs are a component of a holistic plan. Right. Uh, they are not the sole solution. Right. They cannot be everything to everybody all at one time. Right. You know, and so do I think that we need an SRO on every school campus? Yes, I do. I 100% support that. But I also need people to understand that we put so much pressure on these guys and these girls, or men and women in uniform, to be more than what they're capable to be, right? And so in that school resource officer's position, they're a defender. They're an ear when a kid's having a problem. They're, you know, a provider. Present. They're present. They they're engage. Pres- yes, they, they're supposed to engage right. and establish relationships and understand the security plan and, you know, have a good grasp of, you know, how to deploy an emergency operations plan and to delegate assets and to communicate on the radio and to possibly have to take one of these children's life. And that's what I don't think our legislature is is considering. When they're talking about arming teachers, teachers by nature are nurturing. Giving. Yes, they're they're all of those things, nurturing, loving, giving, uh, supportive. And now you want to put a weapon in the hand of the person who potentially has established a relationship with this child and think that they're going to be able to shoot him or her in the event of a a crisis. And I'm not saying that they couldn't. I'm just saying that I think that you're, it's almost like these folks that are pushing this narrative to consistently arm teachers is overlooking the fact that the data and research shows that arming teachers is not the solution. The solution is providing resources to these kids and identifying their behaviors and patterns of behavior. It's like we've skipped over all of that because it smells like work. Right. Right? So let's just give a teacher a gun. And let make it their problem. Yes. So now you have to educate them. You have to teach them to have respect for you and hold them accountable. And, oh, yeah, you might have to take their life if they're threatening. And, yeah. Uh, to, to, to you know, like, I said, uh, like I said the other day when we did the other podcast on HB, thir- HB 13 uh, about the Sentinel program, I understand in some cases, you have to arm teachers because of response time. Right. But this this um, nonsense of just anybody who wants to carry a gun going through a you know a training program and then and the uh, training program know, like proposes what six sixteen hours? Uh, no, that's the guardian that's program. Guardian this program. is different. So it that's would be upwards to eighty, I believe. Okay. It's still that's it's still not enough. Two weeks worth I mean, of work time. I'm former presidential counter assault team operator. I can't tell you how many rounds we put downrange, uh, you know, in training scenarios. Um, but that was in full blown training scenarios, not just putting uh, right. rounds downrange, right? Right. I mean, it was actually going through situations. It, well, it was stress inoculation. Absolutely. Right. And so I would ask those that are proposing this are you having a stress inoculation course? Well, there's so um, much other to think about, like, you know, what's your backstop? Right. I mean, you're in a yeah. room full. You're in a hallway. Yeah, you're in a hallway. Yeah. This is going on. Like, what is your backstop? One of right? the largest like, schools we've been in. Right. 275 yards. The, the longest hallway was 275 yards. 
How many people can that round go through? Tons. It, it's crazy. So these are things that people don't think about at all when they talk about this. And the, the training, I mean, it, it is, I, I believe for law enforcement, it is one of the most challenging environments that they can go into is that uh, is a school and not only having to take care of themselves, go into a facility not knowing necessarily where things are coming, where somebody's at, how many people are involved, and they have to engage somebody. And at the same time they're engaging it, they're looking at everything that's around that target, yeah. right? Um, what what else is around it? What is what is uh, if I miss? Well, what does this? What does what happens? I'll even take it a step further. Um, I was in a school this or a school here a while back. Uh, this was a private school, very very respectable private school. Um, did a lot of really good things. One of the things that I felt, you know, through our process at M6 Global is identifying their vulnerabilities. One of the vulnerabilities and risks that we identified was priority number one is that you have um, three individuals or four individuals on your campus that are all carrying a weapon. None of them know who they are, who each other is. They don't train together. They don't, they don't know who the other one is. So what deconfliction policy do you have in place? Right. How, How do does you the know responding that, that person who's carrying a weapon is not the bad guy who's exactly. just caused harm. I mean, the, the possibility in that scenario for one of the staff members to actually kill or injure another staff member just by- Increased. It, it just yeah. dramatically. Yeah. Dramatically increased. And so, you know, for me, I was, uh, was kind of taken back that, you know, I asked the question, well, what, what have you done? Um, you know, what policy sits in place um, that has authorized these people to carry a weapon? And it was, well, it was at the administrator's discretion. Okay, great. But what about liability? What about deconfliction? And they're looking at me like, oh, what, what's deconfliction? It's like, what other responding agencies are possibly going to respond here? And they gave, you know, rattled out a bunch. I said, have you communicated with those responding agencies that you have armed staff? Because there's nothing displayed that says you have armed staff. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying that if you're going to do it because it's your right to choose to do it, You've got to do it right. You've got to inform. You got to inform people. You got to. They have to be informed of who the others are. There's got to be a deconfliction policy. You know, there has to be a substantial amount of training involved. Um, and so, I was shocked to hear that they just kind of were winging it. It's like, oh, you have a license to carry issued through the state of Texas, uh, and I think you're okay. <laughs> well, I mean, my question would be, what, what makes them qualified to determine if someone is? Right. able to carry a weapon on campus. Well, and we, we've talked so much about mental health. What did they go through to see that this person isn't having some other stressors in life right. and could be potentially a workplace violence person versus someone, oh, it, he seems okay. Like, well, let's, these, let's this particular school has, has SROs. Right. And the SROs don't even know. And the SROs don't even know who these individuals are. Right. So... You yeah, know, it's a very there. it's a very serious but, issue. You know, that I think I will this is what makes makes a lot of sense for what it is that you and I do. Right? Mm -hmm. Is that we are able to go in there, let them tell us what they've got going on, look at past histories, do an assessment, do an analysis of everything that they've got going on. These walk through these decisions that they've made, and challenge them, and then help them to fix these issues, right? So right. we then are now able to say, okay, here's a, 
here's a better way to do this. Here are all the reasons why you should do it. And, and we do this for not just schools, but for businesses, uh, for uh, organizations of all sizes right. and shapes, not just schools. And so the same problems exist in some uh, corporate and gov- even government facilities and oh, type government's of things. got it all figured out. But you it, where you know they've uh, have increased uh, response times, um, and they need to have a level of protection based off of whatever that facility is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen organizations go through and try to like build their own force, right? That's in the area yeah. of employees, right? Yeah. And um, in in some cases, that may very well be warranted, um, but there has to be a lot that goes into that. I have a client coming to my head right now as you're speaking about that. Right. And you know what I'm talking about. I do. And yeah. so the thing is, is that uh, it, it, it may very well make sense, right. but it is that training, it is that execution, it is that communication. And when we talk about like defunding some of the things, you start talking about not just within police or fire, but other systems that they use as well. So one of the challenges that we have in Texas specifically, but it's not unique to Texas, is uh, when you get to an incident, we saw this in Santa Fe when you you saw us in Uvalde, uh, there's no no comms, right? Uh, One agency can't talk to another agency, right? Everybody's out on their own. Um, And if you started to keep a repository, within 911 dispatch, right, to say, pop up on there and say, hey, there are armed staff members at this facility. That technology is not there. Like, it it could be, but it takes money to implement Mm -hmm. those new technologies. I mean, uh, you look at some of these major cities, some of these cities are still running on, you know, 15, 20, 20 30-year-old dispatching software. And they don't have the money to upgrade and there's no funds for it. And so we have a limited information, we have limited to no comms, and then you add this component of people potentially being armed and people not knowing who it is. It is an absolute recipe for disaster. You add into that, hey, any teacher that wants to sign up, you can go through that. Hey, we'll even pay you to do it. Yeah. Like this just escalates this problem that already exists today to a whole nother level. So imagine now, You've got these staff members you don't know, and oh, by the way, any one of the 200 teachers in this could building be armed. could be armed, and yeah. we don't know who they are. We don't know the Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Right. You know, law enforcement has a whole lot of things that they use. Obviously, we're not going to talk about it, but to identify each other, right? Different mm-hmm. things that they say. Right. They passwords. even have things, passwords, different things, okay? That doesn't exist if you don't train that, you know? And well, I mean, if you look historically, uh, what we have seen is even those that have plans like Uvalde, um, they were one of the only districts that had a compliant plan. Right. They didn't use it. Right. right? Um, even if you have a plan, that doesn't mean that all of the other responding agencies who decide to self-dispatch know the plan, know who's even in charge. And so what I will tell you and what I'll say directly to our law enforcement agencies is police yourself. You know, if you can respond within a certain period of time and you have an agreement with uh, that entity, that school district, then then by all means, do what you've been designated to do. But if you do not, 
then go to the staging area. If they have a staging area, if they don't have a staging area, let us figure out and let us plan out that plan for you uh, well, and designate that. And so you know, don't just self-dispatch just because you've got a badge and a gun. It complicates things. You don't, don't take my word for it. Look at historical data. Columbine, Parkland, uh, Sandy, Hook. Sandy Hook, Uvalde, Santa Fe, they were all the same. Everyone was dispatching, self-dispatching. It caused more problems. You know, one of the things that I think that this most recent shooting in the Allen, uh, Texas mm-hmm. outlet malls put into perspective is something that I've heard you say over and over again. Because, you know, uh, you know, let's say Santa Fe, there was three hundred over 300 officers yeah. on site. Something, something like that. that. Yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a lot. A, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was a lot. Um, when we look at the Allen outlet mall shooting, that was a single officer armed with a uh, with a pistol, mm-hmm. um, and he shot a person that was armored, uh, had on bulletproof vests in the face, and and he had an AR fifteen yep. style rif- rifle, um, and one officer was able to neutralize that threat, mm-hmm. and so it didn't take three hundred, four hundred, however many hundreds of officers to do it. Now, could it have gone another way? Absolutely. But it puts into perspective that you don't need all of these people, and how the the increase for uh, potential uh, miscommunication, uh, identification between agencies, incident mm-hmm. command, all come into play. And, and and historically, if you look at any of those uh, school shootings that you were at, in any of the analysis afterwards, there was never incident command established. Yeah. Right. And so, in theory, uh, it's all great, right? But, but you have to practice. But, well, you have, you to, have, you have to, to have those conversations plans. prior to. True. You know, it's like, you know, like I said, when I when I started at Texas City, you know, uh, I really really made a couple people angry, agencies angry, when I said, okay, if you can respond within five minutes, raise your hand. If you can't, you know, if you're if you can respond within that five minutes, you raise your hand. You're a primary responder, meaning we are allowing you inside. If you're a secondary responder, meaning you haven't or you can't respond within five minutes, you're a secondary responder. Stay outside of the building. Right. You know, engage in crowd control, establish a perimeter, start relaying information, establish a command center, you know, direct media, uh, start setting up the reunification. You're just as much a hero to do that than you are just standing inside of a hallway with you know, 50 other guys looking in the direction of a shooter. Right. It doesn't take 50 people, it doesn't take 10 people to you know, isolate an individual shooter. Right. You know, don't get me wrong, you know, there's no incident that I don't think in a school, whether it be Parkland, Sandy Hook, Santa Fe, Uvalde, um, uh, or, or Columbine, that I don't think that you know, a dozen officers could not have controlled, right? And, and kept contained. Um, you but know, that so, comes down to money to have officers, money to do training, right? right. And, and having those resources available. Well, having and, the plan beforehand and yeah. then having those hard conversations with those entities. You know, what I'll tell you is if you're a superintendent or if you're a safety and security director at a school, have the hard conversations now so that it saves you heartache later. Have the hard conversations with those entities. And a lot of these districts, you know, there's one south of us big district. They do a very good job. They're very well respected. They've got 13 entities within their jurisdiction. Yeah. It's a mess. You know, it's an absolute mess from, you know, even let's look at HISD. Oh my God. You know, 
your your incident commander or your responding agency may vary from campus to campus. Correct. Oh, it does. Based upon jurisdiction. And so those are what we can't just say, you know, one entity is going to have incident command. Well, that entity may not be able to respond to every location within five minutes by or 10 minutes. It, it has to go by, by campus. campus. So, right. you know, when you look at the greater uh, picture here is like, you know, the, all the buzzwords that legislators are talking about, you know, emergency operations plan, because it sounds cool because their 22-year-old recent college graduate staffer told them, you know, right. about an emergency operations plan, that that's what they're pushing. And that's what they're saying. They don't even, they probably never reviewed one. Right. Or uh, been through the planning process. Or been through the planning process. Well, and let's let's talk about that for just a second, right? Mm-hmm. How many people have we seen pop up here that are mm-hmm. offering those services who've never done it before? Yeah. Right? Or they've learned something in a textbook. They've never actually those planned. Are, um, those are what we would say are uh, PowerPoint warriors. But we but we've seen that, right? Yeah. When you look at the the the, the planning capabilities of your team, and specifically the team that comes from the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. How many, just random number, I know it differs, but how many different facilities did you plan trips for oh, and God, all this stuff know. between all of the protectees under Secret Service? It, I don't even know. It's a crazy uh, amount, right? Hundreds. I, I don't know. I mean. And and you didn't have one plan, right? No, every, single, every plan was different. <laughs> every plan That's was different. That's why I always tell people, different. is like, listen, stop focusing on the overall EOP. Right. I know that that's a state requirement. You've got to do that. Right. But what I'll tell you is you need to look at the molecular level and the campus level. Start focusing on an emergency action plan specific to each campus. That is where the bread and butter is. That's where you win. Mm-hmm. The EOP is for a generalized conversation, right. uh, multidisciplinary, I get that, or multi-hazard, I guess I should say. But the EAP is going to be what sets you in motion for win and for success. And even goes as far as spelling out stakeholder responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Because as we have identified and through the, the planning process that we've done for all of these schools that we've done so far, uh, the, the response for a teacher is totally different than an administrator, mm-hmm. totally different than facilities, totally oh, different man. than, you know, all of those things come into play. So. And we've gone, we've run the gamut from defunding to teacher morale to EOPs, EAPs. I, I think to, it just goes to show how many things that we offer real world common sense experience for right. when we go into a district. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have the passionate customers that we do and mm-hmm. are excited that we're on site and out and they're helping because when we get into these meetings, get into these planning scenarios, um, we are able to guide them through the entire holistic approach of securing your facility, mm-hmm. right? It's not just, hey, we're going to give you an assessment that's required. We're going to check the box. I have this template out. and we're going to hand this to you. Write me my check and, and, we're gone. and we're gone. That's not yeah. what we do. We're going to do it from beginning to end. And I think that's what separates us from anybody else in the space is, Yes, we have you know the M6 Global team from a consulting standpoint. We've got 29 consultants in 15 states. We're approaching 600 years of experience. We're bringing on new talent every single week. It seems like uh, you know covering every component of that holistic approach that we know works. That the Secret Service National 
Threat Assessment Center has said works. Uh, we do that, we go in, do the assessment, provide the solution, and then your team comes in and completely just, you know, puts it all into place, turnkey, and for sustained management even afterwards while taking into consideration budget because that's important. It is. You know, I can tell you right now, we have had a couple clients that have given us, one of them in particular, a $15 million budget to just essentially treat them as if they had absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. We went in, it took us about 60 days, completely uh, built out a, a custom plan for them and we came in at 13.4. Right. You know, well below budget. Most people, you know, you give them a 15 million budget, they're going to come in at 16 million and then get you down to 15 million. We're not that way. No. You know. And, and I think that the one of the, the biggest things that we bring to the table is just like you're willing to call, you know, a, uh, call somebody out for whatever they're saying or nonsense that's going on. We do the same thing as it relates to products because mm -hmm. there are a ton of people. Uh, you know, and, and we just went through another, we went through it in COVID, right? With the detection cameras that were completely, you know, <laughs> what unreliable. What about all of those ion air cleanser things that everybody was selling? We just went through this yeah. again with the the silent panic alarm technology yeah. where people came up and said, oh, I, uh, I just saw a district um, just advertising how they uh, uh, just rolled out this app for teachers. A teacher needs another app on their phone, apparently. Yeah. And so in this app, the only thing it does is there's a button on it that then calls 911. So apparently, you know, the district needed to invest in money to put a button in there so that they could press twice to pre open up the phone, open <laughs> they up the app. They already have that and on their they phone. already have that because they could have hit phone and hit 911, <laughs> yeah, right? Phone 911. But, but but they spend that money on technology yeah. for an app with a single button on it that calls 911. Yeah. And and, it, and they got grant money for it and they spent their funding on it and that was the solution yeah. deployed. And there's all these people who have come out with all of these products, uh, wireless pendants, all this kind of stuff that... that RFID all these badging. schools uh, went through and deployed, yeah. and it's a disaster. And we're going to find all of that stuff within a very short time, buried in some desk, out of batteries, not working, apps not on the phone. Teacher got a new phone; yeah. it's not there. There's no, there's no testing. There's no compliance. There's no nothing. Right, and so, oh, well, the next question is going to be, well, why didn't you use your your app to call nine one one? Because I was being shot at. <laughs> Sorry. I opened up the phone and I called 911, yeah. right? I didn't press Listen, the button. I, I think some technology's good. I mean, we've got For some sure. we've got some folks but in the industry. That's where it comes that's where expertise comes in yeah. is is bringing all this nonsense down into common sense yeah. with reliable solutions yeah. that actually work from legitimate companies that yeah. have real research and development are actually moving the needle, moving forward, proactive developing stuff, yeah. uh, you know, publicly traded on the stock exchange type companies that are yeah. real legitimate, not in some Santa Barbara uh, guy's basement, right? And that was outsourced to India, you know, not, not knocking India, great yeah, folks, but, but, but outsourced saying, wherever and it was Poland just something to put wherever. in there. Right. It's, it's that type of stuff that just comes out and fills the marketplace and Schools get overwhelmed, well, and I need to do something, so they do something. And again, it's a knee-jerk reaction. It clouds the judgment, and this is what's sad, is you know what I tell people all the time is, listen, maybe we're not for everybody from a price point. 
Sure. Um, and I certainly understand that. But I, I, I also say, and I like to say, that we won't let price get in the way of us preserving yeah. life and helping you. If there's something that we need to work through, let's sure. negotiate, let's work through it. But I want you to get uh, what we believe with our experience, your team, my team, and our network is um, vetted products that we know work, that we know are going to be around in mm -hmm. 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Right. Uh, rather than um, being a predatory uh, individual or company like some of the people that we know and that we've seen sure. that go out and they prey on the vulnerabilities of educators not knowing the difference between what's good and what's not. I would take it a whole nother step further. We've seen predatory reps who work for a company go out, sell all of these things to somebody, turn around, quit, go to another company, go back to that same base and sell it all again. Mm -hmm. The first one failed and for some reason, they think the they, second they, think they go yeah. through and buy from this yeah. person again and they, then they come back over. And what's interesting about that whole deal is that when we see through that, that these people are there and we call them out on it. They get mad. And they get mad. They get yeah. their feelings hurt that we yeah. call them out and that we would be able to say, yeah, that guy already did that over at this company and it was a disaster. He's now at this company and it's a disaster. He's trying to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, and so I mean, it, we're pretty know, much, you know, product agnostic. I mean, sure. we, you know, we have our preferences. Don't get me wrong. Um, but our preferences are based upon Things data and research and things yeah. that work. That's yeah. why they're reliable. our preferences. Right. You know? And they actually back it up, their products with warranty and are responsive and training programs yeah. and uh, made in America. I, you know, just all these little things that, you know, really make a difference at the yeah. end of the day. It's, um, you know, the, the, the industry itself is, it's, a, it's an unregulated industry. And um, it's a shame that we do have people that, you know, listen, I'll be the first one to tell you, um, I'm not, for, uh, I am a, a for-profit business. So is Mike. Uh, we have families to feed also. Uh, but at the end of the day, what you are going to get is, is what you're seeing right here, this very honest and raw um, response. Um, we're going to tell you, we're not going to sugarcoat. We're going to tell you exactly what you need and why you need it. Uh, we're going to factor in your budget. We're going to factor in long-term sustainability and management of that product or of this service. Um, whereas, you know, you have to be able to de decipher and differentiate uh, who's just trying to sell you on a product and who's trying to provide you a solution. Well, because there is a, a difference. Step further is that um, we're actively engaged in our businesses, yeah. right? Yeah, if somebody calls, they're talking to you and me. Right, or, you know, and, and no matter what the situation, you're always available or I'm always available. So even if one of your team members, one of my team members is out representing the organization, um, if they have a concern, if they have a question, if they just wanna to talk to us, like we, we make ourselves available so that um, we can answer any of those questions. And and so, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big difference. What gets lost in, in some of these companies that try to consider themselves nationwide. Let, let's just cut right through that. There is no, Nationwide. nationwide integrator, right? Yeah. They're just they don't not. talk about their subcontract because th that's exactly <laughs> they, they subcontract out, right? I mean, uh, you uh, got a little exposure to that in the past, yeah. right? And so they said, "Oh, I've got this person." You know, we have the team. Yeah, they didn't have a team. Even their subcontractors were coming from another city. So, yeah. Um, 
it, there is no such thing, right? And so uh, they they use these subcontractors uh, and end up just being a number. And then they get, customers get stuck in the oh well, I need to talk to my manager. I'm going to see if, if I can get this approval and get the runaround, right? And and so we cut through all of that. You know, the the buck stops here, right? And mm-hmm. and we say what we mean. We do what we say. Yeah. And uh, I think that any organization. We come in and it's a refreshing experience yeah. compared to what they had in the yeah, past. Yeah, because you're going to get us just the way we are right now. Right. You know, and you know, it's just when you said that, <laughs> a couple of things popped into my brain. <laughs> I can recall ordering something online and it's supposed to be shipped by FedEx, and then some some dude pulls up in a you know 1993 Kia Optima or something, smoking a cigarette. You know, with his pants hanging off his rear end and he's delivering my FedEx package. I'm like, I don't feel like I got my money's worth. This is not FedEx. You know, it's subcontractor. It's just like with, you know, uh, residential cameras. You know, you go to ADT. I'm just I'm not throwing it out there. Well, I I said ADT, but I'm not. This is just using ADT as a reference. I'm not bad mouthing ADT. I'm just saying uh, some of these some of these residential companies, you you hire them out and then the installer comes out and it's some dude in an old beat up van. Right. You know, and I, I get that. Right. I understand that. Um, but people want a professional service. Right. They want to talk to the person who's going to make it happen. Yeah. And they want right? people who are trained, uh, you know, factory and trained and know what they're doing and, you know, show up in uniform represent the company and know and have experience doing the work that you're hiring them to do. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, all of those things, it, it's, it's no different than planning and yeah. what we talked about getting plans from someone who's actually done it and yeah. done it over and over and over again in facilities across the country and across the world. Well, no plan have I ever done was the same plan. Right. You know, I mean, Nor I can, should it be? No, it can't be because right. you have different things you have to take into consideration. The people, the environment, the terrain, the you know all of these things that you have to take into consideration. One of the things I think is really interesting, and and it, I wish that we could show more, right? But for security purposes, we, we can't. can't. I know. But when we get the actual buy-in from a school district or a private school, and we get all of their stakeholders, which is which is often very difficult to do for them mm-hmm. to clear their calendars and get them all in the same room. Uh, whether they've got police departments, whether it's administration, oh, yeah. superintendents, facilities, and we get them around the room and we sit at a table and you start working through their facilities. And like, let's, let's take the first one and we start going through planning that out and talking about it. And all of the things that we start walking through and, and get them to think about and come back in there, they're completely blown away. Like yeah. they, I've never thought about this, right? Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff you would think that they would need to know. I mean, how many facilities have we been into where we ask where the gas cutoff is and there's not a single person Nobody knows. that knows yeah. or how to turn off the HVAC system because there's been some type of leak outside. Now, obviously, Texas City knew that pretty well because you guys had to, that all surrounded by you know uh, refineries, right. Right? right? Y'all knew how to do that, right? But you go to other places, they may not have ever been through that. Um, how, where is this disconnect? Where is this? And you start going through and there's, there are facilities that they have no idea. It's like, mm-hmm. this is why this needs to be documented. This is why we step through this process. Right? Remember the first time I publicly shared any of my plans, mm-hmm. you know, obviously we, you know, redacted some things, sure. but remember the first time I ever shared any of my plans on a, on a, on a grand scale, 
uh, to me, it was normal. Right. To everyone in the room, I think it was frightening. Right. Um, you know, we have a, we have a friend of ours who's in the mass communication space who we've become friends with, um, uh, Eric Endris. Yeah. Uh, love Eric, and uh, with Share Nine One One, but he. Um, he was sitting in the front row and I remembered presenting and showing kind of some of my maps and my planning and it showed everything, you know, roof access, uh, HVAC shutdown, uh, gas, uh, you know, triage areas, uh, where the weapons were stored, a compass. Uh, perimeters, a compass, a tactical 12 o'clock, uh, surrounding areas and door other, numbers. yeah, door numbers all and, on and on. And, and he on thought and on. I was crazy. I mean, I right. remember looking at him. I didn't know him at the time. In fact, he introduced himself afterwards and was like, holy cow, man. I never thought about any of this stuff that you just talked about. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, everything should be for quick reference. Right. When you're in the middle of a battle or in a crisis, you right. don't have time to flip through a 614 page EOP. Right. You know, and, you know, the reason why we do this at the Secret Service level. For, for visual images so that we can remember it. Right. I don't necessarily need to know, you know, every little detail, but I know where our ELZ is. I know where, you know, uh, our overwatch would be. I right. know where our tactical elements are. I know how they've been split up into, you know, into different mm. zones or AORs. Yeah. Um, I know where, where the entry gates are, primary and secondary entry gates are. Yeah. where the EMS is going to be staged, all the hasty triage areas. And he was just like, oh, my God, man. Like, I never thought about this. Right. You know? And, and if we I, can ever get to a true unified command, imagine yeah. being able to show a response and be able to show which doors we're sending what teams in and then being able to go and look up at a door yeah. that's properly tagged with yeah. an actual number. I mean, how many how many facilities we've we been into that have no door numbers? Z- uh, tons, tons, right? Tons. None, and they've never. Well, and in. that's part of that's part of the state law. But, but now, is it on there? But no one's enforcing it. Why? And no one's being held accountable. Uh, there you go. Right? There's no consequence. There's nobody being held accountable and their job being no online. compliance. But at the end of the day, it's our kids that are suffering, and Absolutely. that's what's complete trash. Right. Right. And complete garbage is. You know, a lot of these people that are writing these laws and legislation, their kids are not going to public schools. Some of them, not all of them, you know, maybe 50-50. But I don't recall any, uh, uh, you know, politicians' kids that are being, uh, uh, you know, uh, victims in any of these things. Right. You know, why? Because they choose their schools or they choose where they live based upon socioeconomic status. Not everybody has that opportunity to do that. And I'm not advocating for school choice because I think it would absolutely destroy public education. Right. It absolutely would destroy public education. What I will tell you is the greatest threat to the safety and security of our kids is politics. That's the truth. It's politics. And nobody's going to talk to you direct like that, but it's the truth. You want to know why we're seeing uh, uh, the Sentinel plan being pushed into the state of Texas? It's because it's being pushed by the far right. You want to see or you want to know why the defunding movement took off right after the George Floyd uh, murder? It's because it was being pushed by the left. And the problem is, is that both parties are pushing agendas that are affecting your kids and my kids. And so the power truly lies in the parents. And if we really want to make some serious change here, the parents and the general population have got to put aside 
political differences and hold your elected officials accountable and tell them to stop putting politics over the safety and security of our kids. So I'm happy with ending it with that. Yeah, that's strong. You good with that? Yeah, it, it, right. it's 100%. It start The parents, we've got to get them involved. Yeah, parents where the get involved. Is gonna, it's where the change is going to happen. Yeah, good deal. Well, thank you all for joining us. We appreciate it. Have a good one.